This is episode 105 of Connecting Dots. Man, has it gone by fast. We have had a ball doing this, and this week, we did a five-part series on estate planning. Now, this was just a brief introduction. On the average and whole, for the most part, it'll give you some idea of what you should do, but we just scratched the surface. For those of you who are clients of our firm, feel free to go to our education section, and everything is there. So with that, today, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about revocable living trusts because I am a big proponent of revocable living trusts. This is Paul Truesdell, and you are listening to episode 105 of Connecting Dots. Make sure to read the disclaimer in our show notes before each episode. As a subject matter expert who has spoken in front of, oh, 30 to 40,000 people over the last, uh, well, 33 years, specifically on estate planning, I can tell you absolutely unequivocally, beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt, doing your estate planning documents generally sucks. Because what it involves is an admission that, well, we're going to die, become disabled, can't make decisions for ourselves, we're going to need somebody else to make those decisions. Hey, but that's life, right? At some point in time, we're all going to be ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we're going to be out of here, and uh, we're going to be feed for the little bunnies and the rabbits running around out there. So it, it just is what it is, right? Get used to it. So while we're here as bipeds walking around this thing we call Earth. Let's have a good time and try not to, um, you know, cause as much of a mess as we could possibly cause. Let's make things a little bit easier. So with that, today we're going to talk about revocable living trusts. Let's get into something that I think is an amazing tool that has been around for an awful long time. Okay, so the revocable living trust is a really simple thing. And here's how it works. You have a grantor, that's G-R-A-N-T-O-R. And the grantor is the individual that creates the revocable living trust. So think of it like this, they write it out. Now, generally speaking, on the average on home, for the most part, you're not going to write your own trust out. You're going to have an attorney. I never, ever, ever encourage anyone, please don't do your own documents. That's the dumbest thing you can do in the world. You know, doctors who try to treat themselves or attorneys who try to go to court and represent themselves have got damn fools for patients and clients. Don't do that. There's a lot of reasons for it. We're not going to talk about that today in this episode, but the bottom line is have someone who is a subject matter expert licensed in the state in which you reside doing your revocable living trust and all of your estate planning documents because that is the person that if there's a controversy over what you want to have happen is going to be speaking on your behalf. So the grantor creates it. The trustee is responsible for handling the revocable living trust, following the terms and conditions. And so generally speaking, like in my case, I'm Paul Truesdell. I have a revocable living trust. I got a lot of trust, by the way. That is not something you have to have just one or two. You can have a whole bunch of different trusts. It's like businesses and business entities. So just kind of remember that. So I have a revocable living trust. Let's say it's the Paul Truesdell revocable living trust. I'm the grantor and I'm the trustee, right? I created it. I funded it and I'm managing it for who? Me. I'm Paul Truesdell. I'm also the beneficiary. So grantors, trustees, beneficiaries, three distinct distinct roles. And I always say this, if you get a little confused, think of it like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? It's just the same thing. 
grantor trustee beneficiary. Grantors create it and fund it. Trustees manage the assets. And the beneficiary is the person who's going to receive the benefits of the assets. Now, here's the key thing. While I'm alive, I'm the living beneficiary. While I am dis- while I am incapacitated, I'm the living beneficiary. But there's always going to be the final or residuary beneficiary of my assets, and that then means it's going to be either distributed or the trust is going to remain in place and continue to pay an income stream out. Now, with that, why does a revocable living trust work so well? Because, here's the key thing, contractual law supersedes probate law. Contractual law supersedes guardianship law. So I've created a contract between me and myself, in your case, between you and yourself. You as a grantor and you as a trustee. Now think about this for a minute. Contractual law supersedes probate and guardianship law. Well, shazam, Gomer. We all know that life insurance, IRAs, and annuities bypass probate. But why is that? It's because they're contracts. And therefore, they avoid guardianship and probate. So you can do that with a lot of your assets. But what about pots, pans, furniture, clothing, all the goofy things in life that you own that do not have a beneficiary designation or you can't put a paid on death or transferred on death designation? What about things like autos and uh, all sorts of vehicles, both uh, pleasure and for work? What about corporations? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of different things that you own. Yeah, all that crap goes through probate. Nope, nope, nope. Don't need to do that. You see... One of the big advantages of a revocable living trust is it's a master beneficiary designation. I'll tell you in just a few moments what I mean by that, but put that in your noggin. It's a master beneficiary designation. Now let's talk a little bit about a revocable living trust and when it goes from being revocable to irrevocable. Now revocable means you can change it, you can modify it, you can terminate it, you can do anything you want with it. It's yours, lock, stock, and barrel. In fact, way back in 1974, the IRS ruled in a case that you use your own social security number. You you don't need a tax identification number, an EIN, until the revocable living trust becomes irrevocable. Now, when does it become irrevocable? It becomes irrevocable and locks in stone, like the Ten Commandments, at death, when you voluntarily stop being the trustee, or when you're incapacitated. You see, once somebody else steps into your shoes to handle things for you, that's when the trust becomes irrevocable, cannot be changed. The only way it can be changed with a court hearing, a court order, and a judge has to have really good reason to do that. And that's something that uh, a judge just doesn't do. I'm just going to use a couple of legal terms. I'm not going to throw them on you right now. I'm not going to do that. But here's the thing. Revocable, do anything you want while you're competent. You're alive. You're doing fine and dandy, right? That's 99.999% of the time, right? If you are dead, you're dead. You want to say, I am so old. I'm 175 years of age, and I think it's time for my son who's 150 to take over for me. I want him to take over. So that's voluntary. And then also you're incapacitated physically, emotionally, or intellectually. There's something not right. It's not working. Now, next, let's talk a little bit about trust funding. Now, when you have a revocable living trust, one of the things you should always remember and never forget is that the attorney that you're working with should provide you with very specific instructions to fund the trust. Now, I'm pretty adamant about this. If you have a revocable living trust and you are unable to fund the trust yourself, changing those assets which you change ownership and those assets that you change beneficiary designations, you can't do that, then you probably are not capable of handling your own money. You see, one of the 
things that we've done for years is we've, we know that if a person can't follow basic, fundamental, simple instructions when it comes to funding a trust, then the next level of discussion has to be had. Now, most people, when they do these types of things, they do their estate planning, they tend to be older. Why? Because everybody around them is dying and dropping dead and, you know, getting sick. And, well, you live in these age 55-plus communities. It's one after another, after another, after another. And pretty soon, people go, well, man, geez, Bob, maybe we should do a living trust. All right, yeah, Mary, maybe we should. Yeah, that's the way it goes. So here's the thing. When you have a contract, like an annuity, a life insurance policy, an IRA, you fund those things differently than when you have non-contracts. Now, generally speaking, when you have a contract, you're changing beneficiary designations. But if you have things like mutual funds and brokerage accounts, things that are non-contracts, you actually change the ownership to a revocable living trust. Now, can you have a trust for two people? Yeah, that's a joint family living trust. If you function as a single economic unit, what's mine is yours and yours is mine, right? Together forever till death do we part. And then last one standing, him or her or whatever, they get it. Well, then you can do a revocable living trust. If you're gay, you have a homosexual, lesbian relationship, whatever the proper terminology is, I don't care. But whatever the proper terminology is, hey, can you do a revocable living trust and in essence live like a married couple without being married or going through that? Yeah, anybody can. You say, listen, you know, uh, we really uh, like being together, but we're not going to get married for a bunch of different reasons. But we want to live as a single economic unit. Man, this is something you should do, period. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. But I digress. Let me go back to what we're talking about. So you got contracts, non-contracts, you got qualified and non-qualified. Qualified monies are things like IRAs, 401ks, Roth accounts, et cetera. You fund those different than you do non-qualified accounts. So just remember that you've got contracts, non-contracts, qualified, non-qualified. Follow the instructions of your attorney. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want you guys to get sideways and wondering, Jesus, he crossing the line? No, I'm not crossing. This is all basic, fundamental knowledge. But always remember this. You want to make sure that the grantor, the engagement, has the ability to fund the trust because if they can't, then you know somebody's got a real problem. Now, attorney assistance, for example, in filing the quick claim deed, and it's not quick with a K, it's quit, Q-U-I-T. You quit your claim in your property, giving it to your trust. And since you are the grantor and trustee of your trust, bada bing, bada boom, bada bang, it's still yours, no big deal, no tax consequence. Now, some people will say, oh, well, if you do a revocable living trust and you got a house and you transfer the house into the trust, you lose your homestead exemption, you're going to have all this capital gains. Wrong, 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 wrong. All that you have is you just have to have language. It simply states that you're taking full full use and making full effect of the, the homestead exemptions as they exist, for example, in your state or in Florida, for example. But the capital gains is not going to kick in. It's going to, you, it's yours. You didn't sell it. You just transferred it to your trust, which is an extension of you. And it goes back to 1974 with that IRS ruling that I told you a little bit before about. Okay. So bottom line is a grantor who is unable to fund their trust. Those are good indicators that there's a problem and they may need professional help in managing their money. Now, there's lots of different ways in which you put the ancillary 
items for a revocable living trust in play. And what I mean by that is who's going to get what? Who's going to come in and handle things? And so here's what a lot of really good, competent attorneys do. What they'll do is they'll put schedules at the end of the trust because you're going to make changes. Family, friends, neighbors, relatives, coworkers, people are going to change in your life. And you're going to say, you know what? I really don't like my son. He's a real horse's ass. I'm going to put my daughter in charge. No, I don't like my daughter. She married this guy. He's a scumbag. And now I'm going to put my youngest son. You're going to... Things are going to change. People are going to die. You're going to redistribute things. Ah, my son won the lottery. He told everybody to go to hell, so we're going to cut him out, and we're going to give all our money to the other kids. You can do that. The thing is, things change. So Schedule A oftentimes is used as nothing more than a listing of all the changes that you've made in your trust. It's just kind of like an, uh, an inventory of changes. Now, Schedule B is oftentimes used as a personal property memorandum. What the hell is a personal property memorandum? Personal property memorandum is nothing more than saying, listen, all those things I own in life that have no official title or registration to it, pots, pans, furniture, clothing, artwork, all sorts of different things I own, I transfer those by character, by character to the name of my trust. I don't have probate on all those things. Very important. You might be collecting Hummels and you might be collecting uh, precious metals and have worth millions and millions of dollars of that stuff instead of going through probate on it. I can bet your sweet bippy, like they said in laughing back in the 1960s, some state that doesn't have a lot of money is going to want that probate. But again, that's how you do things. Now, real quickly, let me go back and say something about revocable living trust and owning assets outside of your state. You know, you came down from New York or Pennsylvania, you got the vacation home up there, you might have a townhouse up there, blah, blah, blah. You got timeshares all over the green earth. You do realize that without a revocable living trust, wherever you live, let's say it's the state of Florida, that's your primary probate, but then you have something known as ancillary probates in all these other states where you have real property. Except for if you have a revocable living trust, then the domicile of that property is now deemed to be in Florida, and that can be a real expensive little bugaboo. Those ancillary probates can really add up to a lot of coin. Contact your attorney and discuss that with him or her in great detail. Again, for clients of ours, you can go to our education section of Fixed Cost Financial, where you will not pay more because you have more or receive less because you have less. The way we do it, it's better, it's simple, it works. Hey, I got a commercial in right there. I like that. But the bottom line is make sure that you always have that revocable living trust fully funded. Now, you've got it funded and you've done your personal property memorandum. Just saying that doesn't do it. If it's a titled asset, you got to deal with it. But now we have gifting. Well, gifting is like, well, I like to use gifting as a beer. Okay, so you got a beer and you pour a beer into a glass, right? In it goes. You got the nice big foamy head, but it's starting to go over the top. You got to get the foam off. Think of the foam as your gifting schedule. Gifts come off the top. When the gifts are done, then you have what's known as the residuary distribution. Okay, So the residuary distribution says, okay, once all the gifts are made, now who's going to get the money? Now, gifts should be pretty basic. I mean, you know, like I have this gun or that gun goes to the kids. I have this item of precious. You know, I have uh, some antique telephone that I've collected over the years. Different things, sentimental things I kind of want to give away. Gifts of a, of a very specific nature, tangible property, that's what you do in the gifting schedule. But what you can't do is mix percentages and dollar amounts and gifts. You split the gifts out tangible. Now we have all everything else. 
So who's my primary beneficiary? Let's say it's my spouse followed in by my children. Let's say my children are to divide everything in seven equal proportions. If one of the children should die, then I want uh, it to go to their their heirs. Their heirs, are we going to consider adopted the same as natural born? Are we going to include stepchildren? Are we going to talk about spouses? Who, who exactly? So what you do is playing dominoes. That is where a large amount of time is spent with your attorney is figuring out where you want things to go. Not just one level or two levels, but start digging it down and playing what if, what if, what if, what if. The same thing is a lot of the session goes into the art, the agent, representative, and trustee. Who's going to handle things for you? And always remember, never forget, never be discouraged from naming a professional to do that, an attorney who has a lot of experience, because sometimes it costs a hell of a lot less. And also, you won't have all these hootenannies, the Hatfields and McCoys fighting over your assets. So you might have as well what's known as incident or incentive-driven distributions, meaning that if you got somebody in jail and prison, you know, not going to inherit. Uh, somebody who's going through a divorce or a bankruptcy, not going to inherit. You don't want your money to go to somebody you never met. Okay, so incident and event-driven. Now, who's going to get your money? Well, there's lots of different ways to do this. Again, this is where you spend a little bit of time ahead of time, and you can save a lot of money. So, for example, is a lump sum. Most people do a lump sum. They say, ah, oh, the hell with it. My kids are going to get it. They spend it, whatever they do. Me? No. I think that's crazy. If you're worth mega bucks and you simply say, ah, oh, the hell with it. Give it to the kids and we're done. Okay. God bless you. But I think you're a moron. Periodic distributions mean, well, I got a kid who's 18. I don't know that I want to give him all that money at 18. Maybe I'll give him a little bit at 18, then maybe at 21, 23, 25. And, and maybe by the time they're, I don't know, maybe 30, then they have the, everything distributed to them. Okay. You could do that. You could say, you know what? I want to have an income stream, an income stream that continues to be poured out. I can take an income stream and combine it with periodic distributions and lump sum distributions and things that are incident driven. In other words, if the kid is in the hospital and needs medical care, you can invade the principal. Otherwise, I want to provide an incentive. So for every dollar they earn and they have a four-year degree, I want to give them 50 cents on the dollar. So you create a lifetime 401k. There are so many things you can do. And frankly, because of my background, being able to connect the dots and being rather creative, that's what we've done for years is talk to people. What is it you want to do? And if it's legal and you can articulate it, a really good, competent attorney can draft it. I will tell you, though, don't be surprised every once in a while to have an attorney say, never heard of that one before, and it is what it is. Now, there's lots of special considerations, second marriages, natural born and adopted children, disadvantaged beneficiaries. What does that mean? Well, you got a kid who's a moron, okay? I mean, they were, this kid's a moron. They got the IQ. They just have no motivation in life. What do you do? That's a disadvantaged beneficiary. Then you have some people through no fault of their own, they were born handicapped. Now, if they're on Social Security disability, what do you do? Well, you might not have enough money to support them for the rest of your life, their life. And so you don't want to screw up the Social Security disability, but bada bing, bada boom, bada bang. You want to make sure that they get some extra money. So there's lots of different ways to do that. You have a lot of different types of revocable and irrevocable trusts and ways of distributing money so that the child, or should I say wealth, so that the individual does not lose their Social Security. 
So next is Schedule E. So we went through A, B, C, and D, D being the residuary distribution. E is asset inventory. F, address changes. Got to keep up with these people because they move all around. And the letter G is used oftentimes for both recorded and unrecorded loans. Here's the bottom line. I would strongly encourage you to never make an unrecorded loan. But if you do, there's ways of balancing the estate when you get things squared around. Okay, so that was a pretty quick, fast version, even though it took a lot of time and we normally never do these kinds of connecting dots this long. That's a real quick version of what a revocable living trust is all about. Well, in this five-part series, we covered a couple different things. We definitely did not go deep into this topic. This was just to give you a little bit of an idea. And so this is the kind of information we provide our clients at Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing, where you will not pay more because you have more or receive less because you have less. And so with that, that does it for today. Thanks for joining me. I'm Paul Truzdo with Fixed Cost Financial. If you have a common idea, tip, trick, or just want to opine, give me a call at 888-629-7864. I love saying that. 888-629-7864. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We're on YouTube. And most importantly, go to dots.fm. That's where you get all the good stuff and the extra material. Also, please subscribe to Connecting Dots wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'll be back next week with another edition of uh, Connecting Dots. This is a little bit of a longer one. It's more of a deep dive, but it's a topic. And we didn't even begin to scratch the subject or the uh, the whole area there. But hey, now you got a little bit more of an idea with that. We're out of here. Gone later. Bye. All rights reserved. Reproduction or use without written authorization prohibited without written authorization. <laughs> <laughs>